Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Join us as Michael Merlin, founder of Merlin Wealth Management, and various friends and experts break down complicated financial topics to make them easy to understand. If you'd like more information about Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. And with that, here's founder of Merlin Wealth Management and private wealth advisor at Rockefeller Capital Management, Michael Merlin. Thanks, Tom. I uh, appreciate the, uh, the introduction and welcome to our clients, our colleagues, and all of our friends to our second Taking the Complex and Making It Simple podcast. Uh, today's topic will be estate planning and more, uh, and I'm so happy to introduce to all of you my good friend, Abby Flaum, uh, who will share her expertise with us today. Abby, I know how much you like uh, formal introductions, so I'll keep it really brief, but Ab Abby is a partner in the estate planning group at Cohen Pollock Merlin Turner in Atlanta, Georgia. Her practice is devoted to estate and gift planning, charitable planning, probate, trust and estates administration, uh, pre and post marital planning and business succession planning. And while she works with incredible people from young professionals to Fortune 500 executives, I know one of the things that Abby is the most proud of is that she has helped her clients shepherd hundreds of millions of dollars to various foundations and charities. So uh, Abby, I am super excited to have, uh, have you here and to be able to do this with you. And I hope at the end, we have a few minutes to sneak in some conversation about philanthropy, since I know how important that is to both of us. So welcome. Wow, thank you. That was that was such a great introduction. I wanna do a podcast every day. Thanks hey, for having me, Michael. I will have you back as often as you'll come. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here, thanks. Good, so I, I wanted to start uh, with something that I, I, I know is very important to you, uh, which is, the, the depth of the relationship that I think you and I both believe is required to help a client appropriately and effectively create a good estate plan. And I'm, and I'm gonna kick that question off with a quote from your website um, that, you, uh, that you have up there, which says, I feel grateful to serve not just as my client's estate attorney, but also as their general legal advisor, counselor, and confidant, uh, which I think is fantastic. And I think goes to the, the nature of the question, which is, why is it so important to have that trust-based, solid, long-standing relationship with a client in order to, to deliver the best planning advice? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, this, unlike so many areas of the law, is such a personal area. And I can do the best, most exhaustive job planning for my clients if I know all the details. So. Some clients um, will approach estate planning from a very transactional perspective. They'll call, they'll say, I need to do a will. They'll answer the questions asked to them. There's very little discussion. I have to try to pull information out of there. And I think they're thinking about it as this is going to be a one and done transaction. And for some people, it is a one and done transaction. But for most people, um, it's an ongoing relationship. I get to know them. Sometimes I get to know numerous generations of the families, just depending on what the goal is. Um, and they tell me their biggest, most important job as the client is to share their personal wishes, what they're thinking they want. My job as the advisor is to hear everything that they're saying and consider not only what their wishes are, but current family dynamics, 
the idea of avoiding controversy in the future and maintaining family harmony as best we can, selecting the right trustees and other fiduciaries, and guiding clients on the most tax-efficient structure for everything they're looking to do. But I can't give that really good exhaustive advice if they're not sharing details. So, for example, I'll often start talking to clients and they'll tell me they have two children and I'll just purposefully say in sort of a nebulous way, tell me about your children. Now, sometimes the answer to that is, oh, they're good kids and, and I have to pull more out of them. Sometimes the answer is, well, this one has um, a drug problem or this one is going to be the next Nobel Prize winner or this one has this particular issue going on or this one has special needs. But this is the reason I purposely ask that question in such a broad way because to the extent you can ask an open-ended question and let clients just flow with it, the more information they share, the better. And the more we get to know one another, the better. Um, because I plan on practicing law a really long time and plan on being here to help them with all the changes that may come in the future. So you know, you, may, you make a great point about asking the open-ended questions. And I think one uh, that goes toward, as you mentioned, clients expressing their personal wishes, but also some of their personal trepidations or personal fears. Uh, one that we get often is, how much of my wealth do I want my heirs to inherit? And will they be prepared to do to inherit it and, and treat it responsibly and and do well with it, but also do good with it? And then how do I also make sure that they're empowered by that inheritance and not stymied in their own personal achievements? What do you what do you say to clients when they when they talk to you about that? Yeah, it's the old I want my kids have enough to do something, but not enough to do nothing sort right. of thing. Exactly. And 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 we can plan for that. We can plan so that the clients don't necessarily have what we would call trust fund babies sitting around waiting to collect a check. Um, how we plan for that depends a lot on the client's desires and what they're looking to provide. Um, but but we can. Um, and and to your question about limits, a lot of clients these days do say. Look, I'm going to leave my kids a nice inheritance, but I'm not leaving them the whole thing. And so I do see clients putting uh, dollar or percentage limits on what their kids' inheritances are going to be after they pass away, more frequently dollar than percentage. Um, oftentimes leaving whatever's remaining, if it's not to a spouse, to charity. Um, but there are so many different ways that we can do that. Again, it depends mostly on what the client wants personally. And then leaving the language drafting up to me is, is you know, ultimately how we accomplish that. Absolutely. Uh, and, I, and I think it's, it's important, as you said, to leave that flexibility open and, and, and for clients to be open enough and comfortable enough with you, with their, with their advisors to express those wishes and also those fears. And, and along those lines, how do you how do you advise clients to prepare themselves for their estate planning, for embarking on their estate planning? You know, all of us mm -hmm. like to be prepared. We like to train for the race before we run it, so mm -hmm. to speak. 
is there is there any kind of preparation that you that you recommend for people before they kind of go down the road? Yeah. So first, when I'm going to meet with a new client, I will send them an organizer. And that organizer asks for a bunch of information. Some of it is off the top of your head kind of stuff, names and birth dates and things like that. Um, it also asks some pretty generic questions like, in your mind, what would you like to see happen with your estate when you pass away? It's just to sort of get the wheels turning about that. And the next part of the organizer asks about the various roles that we might be looking to fill in the document. Who's the executor, the person to carry out your will? Who would be in control of the money for your spouse or your children after you pass away as the trustee? Who would be the guardian, the person to be in charge of the care, safety, and support of the children if you should pass while they're minors? So it asks those questions as well. And the last part of the organizer asks about assets, what they are, how they're titled, and approximate values. And Michael, you know this because oftentimes you'll provide us with a statement that really covers that part of the organizer, which is really, really helpful. And the reason we ask all those nosy questions about assets, well, for a few reasons. Number one, um, we want to see where clients stand from a tax planning perspective. Because if we can provide our clients with documents that accomplish their personal goals and they're tax efficient, it's a great win. Um, and so seeing those values really helps us to do that. Also, we want to look at titling. How the assets are titled can affect how they wind up flowing at one person's death. If an asset passes by beneficiary designation, then I don't care if I've given you the most perfect trust in the whole world, it's not going to pass according to the terms of that trust unless we direct it that way. So it's important to look at beneficiary designation. We also want to think about planning reliability, what people would think of asset protection, and the titling of assets is an important component there as well. Um, and so we want to look at all of those kinds of things and coordinate titling, beneficiary designations, estate tax planning, income tax planning, all of those things into our client's planning. So we give this organizer and basically say, Take a crack at it. See what you can do. Fill in whatever you can. Leave blanks for whatever you can't or want to discuss. And typically when clients come in to meet with me for the first time to sit down and talk about their wishes, this organizer is just there to give me a foundation to guide clients through all the right questions that make them think uh, for all the right answers for them. I think that's great. Uh, I, I wanted to turn our attention to another uh, common question or common solution set that I think we both get faced with, which is you know, the DNA of Merlin Wealth Management and the DNA of our investment discipline you know, all comes from the fact that we have been so fortunate to work with amazing entrepreneurs and, and families that have uh, generational family businesses. And planning around those family businesses sometimes can be challenging. Uh, and so I wanted to turn our attention to the question that I think we both get asked a lot, which is, how do I leave control of my business to one child 
while being fair to the others. And I think a lot of times it's not really, that's not really a financial question. That's a family dynamics question, because I think the founder or the founders are worried about conflict within the family around such a decision, not really the financial app, not really figuring out a, a way to be fair financially. Um, I think on my end, um, when when that is a question that comes up in the family, um, oftentimes the first thing we are doing is sort of squaring it financially, which can get sticky if the business is a really substantial part of the estate. Um, and so we have to plan around that. But, you know, sort of to where you're going, because as you mentioned earlier, you know, we do sort of consider ourselves not just state attorneys here, but advisors, and we're talking through all of these issues. Let's say typically when there's one child, there's one child who might be very, very involved in the business, and the other ones aren't involved at all, or they're involved sort of tangentially, but they really don't care. Um, I have, I will say this. I know this is true of me with my law firm, and it's true of a lot of clients who are business owners. They have their babies at home. They, they might not be babies anymore. They might be adults, but they're their babies. But also, their businesses have been babies for them. Um, a lot of clients have formed them and nurtured them into adulthood, just like their children, and they care about them. And it is critically important in estate planning, not only to plan for your actual breathing babies uh, for when you pass, but also to plan for that business baby and who's going to continue to nurture that baby. And so, um, in a sort of long-winded answer to your question, Michael, I'll say to the extent a client is willing to have these kinds of conversations now while they're alive, with the family, um, I think that that is best. I mean, of course, that depends on circumstances and family dynamics, but I've worked with families and helped guided those discussions. And actually, clients have often been surprised to find out who's interested and who's not and how. Um, so being upfront about all of that right now is ideal. Not every client wants to be upfront, and sometimes they just have to grab the bull by the horns and make mm -hmm. the tough decisions. And then not only do I help them to implement those decisions, but in doing so, we're going to be very careful with all documentation um, to note uh, everything driving a client's decision and to prevent conflict in the future. So again, just to sort of summarize, being open and honest up front is ideal. But if that can't always work out, structuring everything in such a way to try to best avoid conflict in the future. Absolutely. And and you know, one thing I think we're seeing very recently, and I'm sure you're seeing it as well, is in the current climate, a lot of these conversations are bubbling to the surface because a lot of businesses today are being approached to either be acquired or sold. And and when those things bubble up to the surface, these 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 concerns also bubble up to the surface. And so I think you did a great job of addressing how to address some of the qualitative concerns. Are there some things that you're recommending to your clients that own businesses that might be thinking about a sale that they should be doing pre-sale, kind of ahead of time in preparation for something like that? 
Oh my gosh. Well, Michael, you know this for sure, but for your listeners, I cannot stress enough that the time to get in touch with your estate attorney is not when you have a letter of intent, um, when a sale is about to happen, or when the sale just happened. And don't get me wrong, we're very happy to help plan for you when that happens. But the time to get in touch with your estate attorney is a few years before that happens. And I'll tell you, speaking purely from a tax perspective, uh, let me give you an example. You call me when your business is worth $10 million and you say, Abby, I expect that in three to five years, I'm going to sell the business and I expect it'll be worth more than that when I sell it. Well, what we can do from a tax planning perspective is to the extent it complies with a client's wishes, we can move that $10 million asset outside of a client's taxable estate. And then three to five years later, when that $10 million business is being sold for $20 million, guess what? All of that growth in the value of the business happened outside of a client's taxable estate. So instead of having to pay gift or estate tax, ultimately to move that value down to the kids or grandkids or whoever the clients are interested in leaving their vet, their wealth to, um, they can avoid all of that tax by doing some pre-planning. In addition, you know, I work hand in hand with my corporate partners to try to help our clients structure the business and the sale in the most tax efficient and beneficial way for them. So, you know, the sooner you get lawyers involved, I know that's so counterintuitive, who wants to talk to a lawyer, but the sooner you get lawyers involved when you're thinking about the sale of business, the better. Well, I, I think all these topics we hit on, whether it was wealth transfer, family dynamics, business succession, or business transition, all of them are underlied by, I think, the things that you set out at the outset, which are preparation, communication, and education. And I think mm -hmm. those are always great pillars when it comes to any kind of comp complex planning. And, and, and when you're trying to take these issues and simplify them and help people come to action, I think those are the, the, the three most important things. And I think you've articulated that really nicely. So thank you for that. You. Um, I think, uh, as I said to you uh, at the outset of this, uh, we also will have some of our next gen clients that I'm sure will be listening to this uh, to this podcast. And one of the things I wanted to do for them is maybe kind of back up a little bit. And instead of talking about wealth transfer and business succession and business transition, talk about some of the things people should be thinking about when they're just starting out and how estate planning can factor in when you're starting of thinking of starting a family or when you start to make money. Uh, what are some of the, I, I know you, I know you say all the time, and I think it's, 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 it's really the right way to think about it from a simplicity standpoint, which is just make sure everything, if, if God forbid something happens to you, make sure that there's no mess, it's orderly, that, uh, you know, that there's good custodians in, in place for children or for assets. That's really what I think the intention is, but, but give some of the, maybe the two or three best practices that young people starting out should be thinking about when it comes to estate planning. Well, first I'm just going to talk about the title estate planning because young people hear those words and they think of you know Downton Abbey or Grey Poupon <laughs> commercials or something snooty but your estate just means your stuff and whether your stuff 
is a checking account, a retirement account, a 401k, life insurance, a house, any of that stuff, it's your stuff. And estate planning is planning for the management and ultimately disposition of that stuff, both during your lifetime uh, and upon your death. And really, uh, in, in between, if you become incapacitated, planning for that event as well. So if you have any kind of stuff at all and you care about that stuff and you care about who ultimately benefits from that stuff and how, then you need to do some estate planning. And it doesn't have to be daunting. For a lot of people, estate planners are the only lawyers they'll ever really talk to. Um, and I promise we're not all monsters that hide in the closet and come out to scare you at night. Um, we're approachable and we want to hear what you have to say and there really aren't dumb questions when it comes to planning for your personal wishes. So the best things that those um, people can be doing are getting in touch with an attorney who they feel comfortable talking to, who they feel like they can grow with and will be around for them, uh, will help them navigate through things like deaths of loved ones and understanding inheritances, and can help them to just structure, even if it's very simple, we'll say estate plan, but at its most basic level, we'll just say a will, a financial power of attorney, and an advanced directive for health care. So those are the three documents that really everyone should have. Everyone knows what a will is. I leave my stuff to so-and-so, and here's who's in charge of carrying that out. The financial power of attorney is the document that says, if I'm alive, but I'm unable to pay my bills and do my banking and basically carrying on the financial business of life, you can name someone to manage those things for you. And the advanced directive for healthcare really serves two purposes. Number one, you're alive, and maybe you're gonna be just fine, but for the time being, someone needs to make healthcare decisions for you. And this document allows you to designate who would be making those decisions. The other purpose of this document is to serve as your living will. So if you're in a really doom and gloom situation, you can express your preferences for end of life support in this document for whoever you name to ultimately carry out. So those are the three main documents that really anyone with an estate or stuff needs. And Abby, along the lines of wills, you know, some of our younger clients know that they're being that they're named maybe as the executor of the parent or a grandparent or a sibling's will. Can you talk a little bit about what that responsibility is? Because I think a lot of times they accept that and aren't exactly sure why or what the what it's going to entail in the end. Sure. So really at its most basic level, when someone dies, instead of that person existing, their estate exists in that person's place. And the executor is the person who represents the estate officially to the world. Um, they don't have to know it all. They just have to have a good enough head on their shoulders to call people like you, Michael, and like me, and like their parents 
CPA to say, hey guys, I'm named as the executor. Can you help me to administer the estate? And typically administering the estate means getting sworn in with the probate court to officially represent the estate, and we help with that. Uh, it can mean making some tax de decisions, which do not have to be made in a silo. They would be made with input from all of the relevant advisors. Filing final tax returns, doing all of the winding up sort of stuff, whether it's selling real estate um, or making sure that IRAs are distributed to the beneficiaries listed, whatever the case may be, and ultimately carrying out the terms of the will, whether it's distributing assets to specific people, delivering assets over to a trustee to administer for other people. Um, but the most important point to hit home here is an executor does not have to have any experience being an executor. It does not have to be a lawyer or a CPA or a financial advisor. It just has to be someone who uh, has the ability to realize that they need some help and to ask someone like you or me or the CPA where to get that help from. And then you mentioned trustee in that same uh, in that same vein. Can you can you just speak for a minute about trusts and when and how they're applicable. I know we can't get into all the nuances of the different types today, but just when when a trust might be contemplated and then obviously the same, I think the same analogy holds through with the trustee versus the executor. Sure, so there are, like you said, many, many kinds of trusts. And people used to think about trust only for people who they did not trust, whether it would be minors or uh, family members that have sort of shady attributes, um, but that's not the case. I would say an overwhelming majority of our clients set up trust for their spouses and for their children. And typically, the reason is not because of a lack of trust, but instead because there can be some tax savings reasons for establishing trust. There can be some asset protection reasons. I can tell you a big one is clients say, look, I love my kids and I love their spouses, but who knows, they could get divorced. You never know what may come and I wanna be sure that their inheritance is protected from a future spouse. Well, guess what? A trust can help you to do that. And really what a trust is, is essentially titling and control of who's in charge with a little roadmap for how that money can be used. The roadmap, of course, is the trust document itself that dictates how the money can be used and who's in charge. The trust account is just an account like you or I might have in our own names, but instead it's titled in the name of a trust. And the trustee is the person who has access to that account, who can decide to work with Merlin Wealth Management to invest it, who can um, decide when distributions are to be made from the trust, depending on the trust terms, who's in charge of filing any relevant tax returns. It's essentially the individual that has total control of the trust, but is required to follow the trust document that spells out how the trust can be used. So I, I think I think we boil that, that section down to, A, there's lots of different vehicles that people can use to embark on their estate plan 
getting good advice is probably one of the most important things people can do when they're starting out in that process. And I'll just quote one of your mentors and mine, my dad, who always said that getting started is the most important thing and that knowing that your estate plan is going to evolve over time and isn't going to be perfect the first time you put it in the first draft of it that you put in place is is important for people to understand. Yeah, I think it's an important point, Michael, because everyone is looking to make sure that the will, the trust they're putting in place right now is perfect. And it should be perfect for the moment. It should be perfect for the current circumstances, your current wishes, et cetera. And my job, frankly, I mean, I think I do a pretty darn good job of drafting myself out of future work by drafting in a lot of flexibility. But it's really important for clients to remember that a really significant amount of the work we're doing can be changed in the future. So as life circumstances change, as wishes change, as desire changes, and as wealth changes, so too can your estate documents. They are not necessarily chiseled in stone. And P.S., that can apply even if they are irrevocable. There are now ways to modify certain irrevocable documents. So we have lots of flexibility in planning for the future, and that's a really important point that you made. Absolutely. So I, I want to, I promised that we would maybe touch on philanthropy for a moment, and I wanted to do that real quickly. I've got two more questions before uh, we run out of time. Uh, and so when, when it comes to philanthropy, Abby, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that clients are determining that in many cases, they're going to leave some of their assets to their children or their heirs and some of their assets to charity. And while that may be a bifurcation, there's still a responsibility to the next generation when those assets are left to in a philanthropic vehicle like a donor advised fund or, or a family foundation for those assets to also be stewarded in custody properly. And so I wanted to get your, your viewpoint on how families do that really well, how they engage the interest of their children, not just in being financially prepared to inherit assets, but also to be prepared for the responsibility of giving away assets. And what, what are some of the best practices you've seen around that? So I think for families for which philanthropy is very important, often we'll start when the kids are young. Um, I remember I had a client who every year around the holidays would sit around the table with all of his grandchildren. He had like 20 grandchildren. And he'd have each of them make presentations about charities that they were looking to support and why and how. And, and I mean, really, he in, included all of the grandchildren, even the four-year-old that stands up and might not have a name for a charity, but says, you know, I really want to help Doggy, and here's why. And, and so he started the grandkids very, very young in doing it, and it became a tradition, and it became something that they really looked forward to every year and had really fond memories of sitting down and not only making their case for which charities they wanted to support, but hearing about all the other charities that their cousins um, and siblings were all interested in supporting as well. And what my client would do is sort of make an allocation each year 
to the charities that the grandchildren had presented for. I mean, unless they presented for something that was a non-charity, then totally a wackadoo cause. But generally speaking, he supported all of the charities and, and the grandchildren grew up that way. So I think if philanthropy is something that's important to you and it's an important legacy you want to pass on down the family line, it's important to start the kids young um, I know that a lot of people, when they give their kids money, have a practice of a third to save, a third to spend, and a third to donate. That's a nice way to do it from the get-go as well. And then, you know, that transitions over time to the clients who have either family foundations or donor-advised funds, which I'm also a huge fan of. And those family meetings can continue and those organizations can really be structured in such a way that continues to foster family meetings, presentations of who wants to support which charities. And it's such a nice way for the kids and the grandkids and everyone in the family to all work together to continue charitable giving. That's such a beautiful answer. I, 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 would, I think I'd love to leave it there, but I, do, I, I think I would get hate mail if I don't ask this last question, so I'm going to ask it uh, anyway. You, you, you talked earlier, you used the analogy of monsters in the closet, and I would never equate oh. attorneys with monsters in a closet, but this last topic or this last question, when it comes to our friends in Washington who are trying to manipulate tax laws and put Those little, monsters monst in the <laughs> little, monst little monsters in the closet, yeah. uh, I don't, we could do a whole podcast on what might come or what you think could come as it relates to tax changes to the estate tax law, the gift tax law, uh, et cetera, uh, what could happen to grantor trusts and other things that have been thrown out there. But I think the real question people want to know is, is that that's going to be a constant variable in their estate planning pretty much forever. There's there's no way to, to say we'll be certain about what estate tax law will be today, tomorrow, next week, next decade. And so what what, what should people be thinking about? I, you, meant, you talked a lot today about flexibility, I'm assuming, that's kind of what your answer will be, but leaving some flexibility in their estate plan, I would assume is probably the best way for them to think about what those changes might be and how they can sleep well at night knowing that there is some unknown still out there. Yeah, now, I mean, at the end of the day, the most important part of an estate plan is accomplishing personal wishes. And like I said earlier, if you can accomplish personal wishes and be tax efficient, it's really a win and most people want to leave their estate to just about anyone other than Uncle Sam. It's not uh, unanimously true, but generally speaking, that is the sentiment. I do think having an attorney that incorporates flexibility into your estate plan is important. I also think regularly checking in with your attorney and saying, is there anything I should be considering uh, it's something that you should be able to do and really speaks towards the question you asked earlier on, Michael, about having a relationship with your attorney. When a client shoots me an email or gives me a call and says, hey, Abby, I heard about some stuff going on in Washington. Do I need to be doing anything right now? I talk to that client for a little while. They're not going to get a bill from me for 0.2 hours, Michael. I mean, it's my job to keep them informed and to talk to them about all of these things. So I would say ensuring your estate plan is flexible and staying in regular contact with your estate attorney as appealing as I know that sounds to so many people, 
um, is really an important aspect of keeping up with all the things that are going on in Washington and will continue to go on in Washington nonstop. Well, I, look, I, I think I think when people have estate planning attorneys like you, it's it's certainly not a chore to uh, to stay in close contact. Oh, and <laughs> I, I I thank you I thank you for your wisdom and advice. And as always, whenever I talk to you, I learn something new. And I know our our clients and our friends are and our colleagues are certainly appreciative of the wisdom and the expertise you gave us here today. And I, I thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so grateful you included me, and you're wonderful. So that that wraps us up for uh, podcast number two, and uh, we look forward to uh, to doing future episodes uh, for our clients and friends. And uh, we're signing off. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. For more information on Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. Please stay tuned for an important legal disclaimer. This recording is provided for informational purposes only and is not an offer to buy or sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or to participate in any investment strategy and should not be interpreted to constitute a recommendation with respect to any security or investment plan. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the presenters as of the date of this recording may not be current and are subject to change and are general in nature. Rockefeller Capital Management has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Rockefeller Capital Management and may differ from the views and opinions of other departments or divisions of Rockefeller Capital Management and its affiliates. Rockefeller Capital Management is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information is not individualized. You should review any planned financial transactions or arrangement that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with your personal professional advisors. Rockefeller Capital Management does not guarantee the accuracy or reliability of the information provided in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. No investment strategy can guarantee profit or protection from loss. Future results may vary substantially from past performance. Investing involves risk, including a risk of loss. This recording may not be copied, reproduced, or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without prior written consent. Rockefeller Capital Management is the marketing name of Rockefeller Capital Management LP and its affiliates. Merlin Wealth Management is part of Rockefeller Financial LLC, a broker dealer and investment advisor duly registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, member Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Securities Investor Protection Corporation. The registrations and memberships mentioned in no way imply the SEC has endorsed the entities, products, or services discussed herein. Additional information is available upon request.